Turn in your Bibles now to Philippians chapter 2. Here for several weeks we've been going through the book of Philippians. This is, as I've said many times before, I think my favorite book of the Bible, partly because it's a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, which was his favorite church. And so you see his heart for them, and this amazing theme that he chose, although he was writing from prison, in the midst of persecution, writing to people who were starting to endure persecution themselves, the whole theme is happiness, joy, rejoicing, encouraging them to have that joy despite everything that's going on around them. And so it's a powerful book for us as we find ourselves sometimes in situations that could seem to be less than joyful, to discover the secrets of joy as Paul explains them to us. We've been in this second chapter for a few weeks, and Paul started out by explaining to them the way life is supposed to work. And the key there that Paul shared with them is you're designed to be connected to others. You're not created to live as a solo act. You're, you're designed that you function best and you experience joy as you are in relationship with others, as you are connected to others. So important for us to understand this. And so he goes on about being unified, being of one mind, of one spirit. The fact that, hey, the way that everyone will get ministered to is if you will esteem others higher than yourself, if you will make your priority to reach out to others, others will also end up reaching out to you, and we all win. And so he presents this beautiful picture of how the church is really supposed to be of how all of mankind was really created to be. But then he says, and here's an example, and he showed Jesus. And he talked about him in that message that none of you have listened to a second time because the CD was blank, where, <laughs> where Jesus is the example of the one who, though he was God completely and totally living in the glories of heaven, yet he decided to humble himself, to make himself a man, to give himself to die. And as a result, he's been glorified. And that glory is that he has fellowship with us. Paul presents a picture of a God who loved you so much, who loved me so much, that he would absolutely pour himself out because he didn't want to be without you. He wanted to have fellowship with you. And so Jesus stands out as this glowing example of how important community is, of how important fellowship is, of being together and caring for and ministering to others. And so Jesus is that example. And then we saw last week as Paul reminded them, listen, you need to do something too. He did this for you, but at the same time, he says, you need to work out your own salvation. Not that you can save yourself by doing good works, but there's a point where you need to get busy, you need to work, you need to take what he is teaching seriously and change your life and change the way you live life. And as God works in you, he shared with us, God is working in you to will and to do of good pleasure. Of his good pleasure, what's good for him is good for us as well. And so he said, put your beliefs into action and start to do it. 
God will do that in you. You need to work that through. You need to finish what, what is starting in your life and live consistently with what you say you believe with an emphasis on doing. Remember, God is working to will, to change what you want, and to do for his good pleasure. So now we've come to verse 14. And Paul here says, and when it comes to doing, here's how you need to do it. Verse 14, do all things. Now, how many things is all? It's all, do all things without complaining and disputing so that you can become blameless and harmless Children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I'm glad. And rejoice with you all for the same reason you also be glad and rejoice with me. Paul is obviously bringing his message of practice down on a very specific level and basically addresses two things that, according to what he's saying, if we do these things, we will frustrate that which God wants to do in our lives. We will do damage to others, and it will block all that God wants to do, really, for us. And these two things, well, one of them, the first one is complaining or griping, and the other one is really literally arguing. The Greek word there that's, that's translated in our version, disputing, is actually the word that, from which we get our word dialogue. It's dialogizomai. Logos is word or, you know, sound speaking. And, and dia, the preposition, the prefix of that is a word that means to go all the way through. Like diameter is the measure of something all the way across. So through or across. Basically, it's what we call arguing. It's having that reasoning sort of thing that, that becomes so divisive so often. So he puts out these two things that, frankly, if I were listing the sins that do the most damage, I'm probably not going to pick griping, and I'm probably also not going to pick arguing. Because for one thing, I can't hardly fathom life without these things. What would I ever talk about if I wasn't griping and arguing? And, you know, we just went through the Thanksgiving holiday and if you think back on it, I'd imagine that there was quite a bit of time that you spent over Thanksgiving, hopefully being thankful. But I'd suggest there was probably also plenty of time in which you were arguing or complaining at the very least. And it's amazing how many things you can find to complain about just on Thanksgiving alone. You know, if you had put the turkey in earlier, if you had put it in later, if you had fixed it this way, if you'd spring an extra few bucks for, you know, for getting a good butterball turkey instead of that Costco one or what, you know, and it's like, <laughs> I don't like, is this, does this have sugar in it? Or, you know, that pie, why did you bring so many pies and why do we always have that? And, you know, nobody ever does mincemeat and it's just on and on and on so many things that were wrong about Thanksgiving that there's plenty to complain about. 
and we find out how to complain. And then, if you're not complaining, you're arguing. Because let's face it, when the holidays come around, that's the time when you're forced to connect with people that you're only bound to them by blood, and really, you would, you would never even choose to spend any time with them at all. I'm not talking about my family, I'm talking about yours. You know, and it's like, you're going, what, you know? And so constantly, boom, oh, I haven't seen Uncle Joe for a while, and I know what happens every time we see him. He's going to bring up something that's going to start an argument, whether politics or, or the sports teams that are competing or whatever. And it's like, oh, I can remember as a kid always looking forward to getting together with the relatives, but mostly because you hear the adults argue and complain. I remember one of the greatest holiday memories that I have, and forgive me, Mom, but... Um, <laughs> My mom had a bunch of brothers, and one year on Thanksgiving, they all went out and got drunk and got in a big fight, and, as a, and, and that sounds, oh, you know, that's a horrible thing, but as a little kid, it's like, this is the most interesting holiday <laughs> we've ever had, and, I, and, you know, that's what we do when we get together. Get together with people, let's argue about something. Let's complain about something. It's habitual in our lives. Now, it's important for us to understand this because of what Paul says this will do. And by extension, if we could stop doing it, here's what the result would be. And so again, do all things without complaining and disputing. Why? In order that you may become blameless and harmless. There's a work that God is doing. We saw it earlier, you know, last Sunday. There's something that God is doing. He is working in us, His work. And what His work is, is He wants to transform us so that we're not at fault. We're not messing everything up. And we aren't those who are constantly offending and hurting others. And so He says, if you are ever going to grow into people that it won't be your fault, and you won't be hurting others and doing damage to others, here's how it happens. You need to get a handle on your propensity to complain about the way that things are and to argue about what other people think. God's work in our lives depends on us having victory over those things. Now, again, those things are some of the most natural things in the world because when I get together with other people, it's easy to talk about the way that things aren't perfect in my life. But God takes that very personally because he's God. And everything I complain about, I'm basically complaining that God isn't doing what he ought to do. If I were God, here's what I would fix, here's how I would work. Can you see why he takes complaining so personally? Because he is God. And this is the way he is choosing to deal with your life right now. He has a plan. He's working in your life. But by complaining, you're basically saying, God, you're not doing your job. It's very offensive to him. It's why in the history of the children of Israel, that became the, the stopping point so often for them. They would start complaining and God would get offended. But it's not just complaining, it's also arguing. The truth is, other people don't agree with me on everything. And it's really because I haven't had the time to reason with each of them individually enough to convince them to my side. 
because I'm right most of the time. The world, I'm convinced, would be a much better place if everyone were like me. Problem with this world is most of the people aren't like me. That's kind of what I think anyway. The truth is what's wrong with this world is too many people are like me. But as soon as I meet another person, there are some things they see differently than I do. And my assumption is I need to sway them to my side. The truth is, a lot of times it's because of my own insecurities with my own views. And so if I have political views of one persuasion and there's someone else who has a different persuasion, I, I first decide that they're just completely crazy and, or totally evil. And then I think, no, I'll bet you no one has patiently explained to them the reality of the political world. <laughs> and when I do that, it'll be a happy world because everyone will agree with me and O'Reilly, you know, and it'll just be. <laughs> and so we naturally get into these, and it doesn't have to be something even as important as politics. What about the sports team that you like? I mean, we had people over last night to watch the uh, USC Notre Dame game. And I can't, for the life of me, understand why someone wouldn't support USC. Now, I know, you know, USC, they're University of Spoiled Children and all that. I understand that, but it's still, you look at this team, they've played three years in a row for the national championship, should have had the national championship the year before, were robbed by Texas last year, and it's like, come on, these are the Trojans. Look at that horse running around the track. Who's not? But the couple that we had over last night, it turns out they're big Notre Dame fans. And then my youngest son, Danny, is, has always been a Notre Dame fan. I mean, never took him to a Catholic church or anything. And he, uh, from the time he was little, he just loved those Catholics. And I'm just, where did I go wrong? But, you know, we didn't fight about it and we didn't argue. And then once USC ran up a 21-3 lead, I realized what a blessing it is to have Notre Dame fans in the house. I, I was enjoying <laughs> I was enjoying the game much more than I would have sitting there by myself going, man, I wish I had somebody to call. <laughs> but here's the thing. God creates us, in case you hadn't noticed, different. And that's the way he makes this world attractive and beautiful. How boring would it be if everyone was a fan of the same team? It would be the same as if we decided, you know what, for landscaping the world... There's one flower that we can all pretty much agree on, one particular orchid that everyone just goes, that's jaw-droppingly beautiful. And so let's breed that orchid like crazy, and let's have those orchids everywhere. Everywhere you look, there they are. And you would go, that's a pretty flower, but I'm sick of seeing it everywhere. <laughs> this is just not, it's kind of like those, um, what are those red flowers that we put out at Christmas? Poinsettias. It's kind of like, I mean, you ever notice you don't ever see a poinsettia anytime except Christmas? Because at Christmas, they're everywhere. And I'm not trying to tell you don't put them in here for Christmas. They're good for Christmas. But the thing is, once you see them everywhere, you're sick of poinsettias. How come we aren't that way with the rest of God's creation? How come we don't look at people and say, I'm glad there are people who are different. I'm glad we have a variety. I'm glad that there are people who have different opinions and different views and different attitudes. 
But instead, I try to make everyone like me. And the worst nightmare in the world would be if I was successful. And this world was just all clones of me. How horrible, definitely horrible that would be. And so we deny God's creation when we don't allow for differences, when we don't welcome differences. And we deny his provision when we gripe and complain because if we were God, we could do a much better job than God has. And so that's why the damage that's done from us being like that is a damage that comes because we don't really honor God for who he is and what matters. But it's worse than that. Do you know how much damage and how much blame comes to us because of our judgmentalism, because of our opinionated, you know, uh, insisting on griping and complaining about things? It's a horrible thing. And you might go, yeah, but that's the way the world is, so what? Again, if we read on. If you'll stop doing these things, he says, what'll happen is you'll become, you'll grow into being more blameless and more harmless. You're not going to be damaging everyone around you. You'll be children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. See, we could become better people if we would quit griping and quit arguing. But he says it's more important than just that. Because the whole point of us becoming less damaging to others and less at fault, making ourselves look stupid, making God look stupid, is because you are living in a world that's crooked and perverse. Now you go, yeah, crooked and perverse, man, that's the world. They're all gross and sickening. That's not what he's saying at all. See, the, world, the word there for crooked is something that's bent. It's not straight. Now, it's not to say, oh, the world is so... The issue is, unless you have a standard by which you can measure straight, you can never figure out or adjust what you need to adjust in the world. And the problem with this world is they don't see a standard, one who shoots straight with them, one who is consistent. In fact, in our society today, they've pretty much adopted a philosophy that says there's no such thing as absolute truth. What's right for you isn't right for me. It's basically like saying, hey, I would love to give you a ruler so that you can draw a straight line with it, but I don't have one. All I have are bent pieces of wood, and it wouldn't help you any, so let's just resolve ourselves to being crooked. It's just the way we're going to have to live. That's the way our world is. They, Jesus came as a straight line, as one who, like a you know, like a level where when the bubble centers, it's like, okay, now I have something to orient everything else about, and maybe I can apply it in a way that I can straighten out some other things, but the world can't straighten anything out because they don't have a straight line. And that's why when God can do that for us, give us that kind of standard, it's important. But the world also, as Paul says here, is perverse. That's not a word that means you know, uh, some kind of, uh, you know, per we use the word pervert and things like that, like somebody who's just, uh, you know, totally gross. The word, the Greek word there is the word strepho, which means to turn, turn around. And the, the prefix on that dia, which D-I-A, which as we mentioned earlier, means across or, you know, from one end to the other all the way through. Basically, what that word that's translated perverse means is spun out, 
spinning out of control, dizzy would be another way of putting it. Remember when you were a kid and you'd deliberately spin around a whole bunch because you'd completely lose your orientation and just then stagger around, you couldn't, you couldn't do anything? Pin the tail on the donkey was fun because someone would be blindfolded and then you'd spin them around a bunch of times and then they would try to pin the tail on the donkey. Uh, they probably don't play that game anymore because the Society for Prevention of Cruelty to Donkeys is probably, you know, <laughs> but it was fun as a kid back in the dark ages to do things like that. Dizziness is fun when it's temporary, but dizziness can be a horrible thing when it comes on you for no reason, as, in, as it does in vertigo. My wife, Ann, got this condition, and we never knew quite what caused it. It kind of went away the same way that it came for the most part, but all of a sudden, she just started, the whole room was spinning. First time it happened, it was my birthday, and she was taking me out to the movies. Really wanted to see this movie. It was a long time ago. It was the first Karate Kid movie. And I had some, yeah, I know, but the, you know, I had some friends that were in the movie, and I was like, I really wanted to see the Karate Kid. We're like halfway through the movie. It's just getting good, and you just know this kid's going to be about to be beating people up. And so before that, Mr. Miyagi's just making him clean the floor and stuff. So it's like, okay, I know he's going to hit somebody any, any day now. And all of a sudden, Ann goes, grabs on to me. She goes, Dave, the whole theater's spinning. I'm like, no, nah, it's not. You're fine. And she's, she's going, no, I'm so dizzy. I'm, I'm about to throw up. And I, I go, okay, just close your eyes. I'm sure it'll be better. I'm like, she, if she feels good with her eyes closed, I'm the only one that wanted to see the movie anyway. And, but she closed her eyes, and it made it even worse. So finally, I mean, and I, I know you're going to feel really sorry for me because I had to miss the rest of the movie. <laughs> as she's staggering through the lobby of the, of the theater and, and then throws up right in the entrance. And, and it's like, I'm like a man. I'm just trying to convince her, it's not spinning, you're fine. And it was really a horrible thing to miss the end of that movie. But, um, <laughs> but it was a drag for her, I'm sure, to be dizzy. But, you know, that is what the world is going through. This world is going nuts. It's spinning like crazy, everything. Nobody has anything they can hang on to and stabilize themselves without a straight edge, with everything being curved and everything rotating, revolving, and spinning. The world is just totally disoriented and doesn't know what to do. Now, this isn't a shot at the world. This is a message from God that says, do you understand you have the cure? that by you being who God has called you to be, you can be that straight edge for the world. You can be the one who stabilizes them and calms them down and can make it stop spinning this way. And the reason why this is so important is because the world desperately needs to see that there's another way to do life than the way they are doing it. They need to see an alternative. And Paul would say, you guys... If you act like the world, then where's their hope? You're in the middle of a, of a crooked generation. You're in the middle of a spun-out generation, and you have the answer. And instead, you're jumping on the merry-go-round. Instead, you're allowing them to tell you what straight is. They need someone who will shoot straight with them, and you won't do it. 
And I'll tell you, this is an indictment on all of us. Because when you look at what the impression that the world has of the church, it's definitely not that we are those who are really straight. We are really solid and can be trusted on. And, and we are ones who have gotten out of the spin zone and we're just honest and we really care about them. The truth is, and it's to our shame, the church can be just as crooked as the world. And the church can be just as consumed with spinning as the world is. I mean, when a church gets to be pretty good size nowadays, one of the first people that they want to hire is a public relations person. Because we want to put a spin on everything. We want to give an angle to everything. Somehow we believe that we need to act like we do no wrong. We need to convince people that, oh, this is a great deal. And we, we try to be spendmeisters for God. And you know, people can see right through that. They can see when our approach is just the same as the world's. Don't you hate it when somebody you know, comes up to you or calls you and they have a script and they have an agenda and all they want to do is to bring you to yes. They want to sell you something and so, you know, they, they call you up and they say, hi, isn't it a beautiful day? And if you go, no, they go, I know life's tough but our product is something that could really change it for you. And if you say yes, they go, and wouldn't you like to have even better days? And, and they have their little sales pitch down. Religions do the same thing, sometimes the same pitch. And I resent it just like you do, and everyone else does too. And they can see right through our spin. They can see right through our PR. They can see right through our scams. We're not fooling anyone. All we're telling them is we're just another scam. Choose between all the other scams and us. I had a guy, I got sick of people who were members of these weird kooky cults and stuff coming up and bothering me. So one night I was at the store and I was coming out to the parking lot and I saw this person that had one of those, those looks on their face like, okay, here comes a cult. And, and uh, they came up to me and said, how would you like to find peace and fulfillment? And I go, I, I thought for a second and I thought, okay, anything I say they have a response to except for this. I said, oh, no, thanks. I'm already a member of a cult. And they were like, the way I shake salesmen off, you know, people call up and they go, how would you like to have an extra $10,000 a month? And I say, no, that's okay. What? You couldn't use an extra $10,000 a month? You know, to be honest with you, I have so much money now, I don't even know what to do with it. And I... And it gets them off their script. But you know, the truth is, as Christians, a lot of times, that's our deal too. That's our game too. It's like, let's suck somebody into the script, and we come up with a good opening line, like, so if you died tonight, would you be burning in hell? How do you know? You know, and, or, or something like that. And it's like, people can see that from a mile away. People in this world aren't really looking for another scam. They're not really looking for another gimmick. They're not really looking for another script. They're looking for people who accept them the way they are and who love them. And you know, the one who is looking for them in that way is Jesus Christ. It's why he became a man. But listen, the only way they're going to see Jesus is in us. 
And man, do they have to squint in order to see him sometimes. And, and what gets in the way of it, what damages his program and what he wants to do so often is that we are always complaining and we're always wanting to argue. Ever notice Jesus didn't do either one of those? Now, boy, could he have argued. You kind of wish just one time he had really locked on to the Pharisees and had a long, extended philosophical discussion with them. And it wasn't because they weren't trying. They were constantly baiting him, and he would say clever things to avoid an argument. Sometimes he'd walk away without saying a word. Other times he'd answer with a question. But usually, argument was over in a second. Jesus just didn't mix it up with anyone in that way. But somehow we think it's our job to do that. But listen, this is a world that needs something that shoots straight. They need a faith that's real. They need something that's genuine. We live in a world that's spinning out of control, that doesn't know which way up is. And what do we do? We get consumed with trying to pitch them something, with throwing them just another variation on the spin. And Paul is appealing to these Christians in Philippi and going, you know what? You are the answer to what they need because of what God has done for you. But if you keep arguing and griping, they'll never see that difference. You appear as lights in the world, he says. Again, as we read on, he says, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Jesus over in Matthew's gospel talked about the fact that, you know, you are the light of the world. He says you don't hide your light under a bushel. He said, let your light so shine before men that they will see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Isn't that amazing? That it's not let your light so shine before men that you'll win everyone to Christ or win every argument or accomplish, you know, turn the world upside. That's not it. He's going, how about being good people and shining where God has placed you? And when they see that you're a really good person, that feeling that they always had, that suspicion that they always had that maybe there is no such thing, they go, no, I think this is the real deal. And how can they see that? How can our light shine? Hey, a great way to stick out in this world is to not be scamming, is to not be promoting, is to not be hustling and spinning but instead no complaining no arguing reaching out in love and accepting people who are different than you are that's a radical concept but it's what jesus did and it's what he calls us to do the word here for as it says that that uh, you would shine as lights in the world there in the end of verse 15 That word for lights isn't the normal word that even that's used in Matthew for let your light so shine before men. This is a word that refers to luminaries. It refers to stars and heavenly bodies. And what he is saying is much greater than just, yeah, you leak a little light out, kind of like the chandeliers or whatever. He's going, you were created as the pinnacle of God's creation to be stars for him. And if you will allow your life and your heart to be consumed with griping and, and with arguing, people will never see what a star God has made you. 
They'll never see that reflection of his light in your life. You were created to do something huge and significant, something that no one else in this world is capable of doing, shining in a way that is impossible for anyone else. But griping and arguing will stop that from happening and cut people off from the hope of getting something straight and real in their lives. And he goes on to say, holding fast, the word of life, hanging on to the word of life. The word of life, that's a great expression for several reasons. Often we'll use it to refer to the Bible, and that's okay as far as it goes, but ultimately it really refers to the word who became flesh. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God, and the word was God. It's Jesus himself. But calling him the word of life is is not only saying that he is the expression of who God is, but he is the one who what he has to tell you and what he wants to do in your life will breathe life into you. You'll finally be more alive and more vibrant than you could ever be apart from him, and he gives you that. Remember one time when Jesus was speaking and he started saying some weird things about communion saying, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And most of the people just checked out at that point. They go, okay, this is getting too weird. And they bailed. But a few of the disciples were left, and Jesus turned to them, and he goes, aren't you guys going too? And Peter said one of the most profound things he ever said, among many less than profound things that Peter said. He said, Lord, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. In other words, I've figured out when you open your mouth, I feel more alive than I've ever felt before. When I look at your life and the way that you live your life out, I'm feeling like this is what life is supposed to be. This is how it's supposed to be lived. This is how it's supposed to be created. And so Paul says, hang on to that word of life. Hang on to the fact that real expression and communication will bring people from death to life will put life into your life, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I haven't run in vain or labored in vain. In other words, the Apostle Paul is saying, when my life is over and I leave this place and and my life is gone, if you guys are still griping and arguing, my life was a waste. What What a powerful, amazing thing to say And yet it's so true because it was the desire of Paul's heart that somehow they would catch what he caught from Jesus and that this little church in Philippi would start to shine like stars, would really produce a real life that offers something to a a lost and spinning world. And Paul said, man, if you guys are still living that way when I'm done, my life was a waste. But he said, if somehow these changes start to happen, God begins this work in your life, I'm happy to die for that. Isn't that, doesn't that sound crazy? For someone to say, and and I know for some of you parents, when your kids are younger, you've probably been tempted to say this. Right now, if you guys would quit arguing, I'd die. Or if you don't stop arguing, I'm going to die. But here Paul is going, If you'll stop doing this and therefore let your light shine in this world that needs to know that there's another way to live life, then I'll be happy to die. 
It'll be so worth it. And then he goes on to say, yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. He says, this is something that's way more important than living and dying. If there's a way that your life could cause any two people to figure out how damaging and destructive complaining and arguing is and they would stop it, then you just doubled your life. But how many people do we have the opportunity to reach in that way, to impact in that way? How many crooked and spun people are are around us that we have the chance to be someone who's straight for them, to accept them and to love them? We're surrounded, we're in the midst of this kind of a generation. And yet we just can't get our act together. And we go on and on, allowing people to have the idea about Christians that basically, two things I know about Christians, man, can they complain. You never know what they're going to be against, but they're against almost everything. Christians are almost defined by what they're against. This is puzzling to the world and kind of frustrating to them. Because no matter what, if somebody makes a movie, I guarantee there's something in that movie that's going to offend someone. And, even, and, and it's amazing, not only are we hard on the world, we expect them to make movies that are Christian propaganda, and if there's anything in the movie that upsets us, we want to shut them down, we want to boycott the products that sponsored them and everything else. So they're like, man, one thing we know about those guys, you got to be careful because they're against a lot. But the thing that amazes me and that amazes the world, I'm sure, is that Christians are most vicious against other Christians. It's like we have opinions against anyone who is different than we are, who chooses to try an approach that's different than our approach. So, you know, I I can understand that when, you know, the movie The Passion of the Christ comes out, that there are some people in the world who are offended. The cross is an offense, and that's to be expected. But Christians who line up to attack a movie like that, okay, sure, I could do the same thing. Because I see things that are in The Passion of the Christ that are different than the way I would have communicated them. But do you understand what it does to the world when they realize that Christians are vicious against other Christians? That every Christian, it seems like, is defining who they are by who they aren't? By speaking up and speaking out and communicating that I'm not like that one and I'm not like this one and I'm not like the other one. Yeah, those people, they're bad. You should be here. You know, and, and you can understand why they do it. It's like, I mean, I know today, I'm sure there are people who are here for the first time. If I wanted to, I could sit up here and if I knew what churches you went to, I could give you a whole bunch of reasons what's wrong with that church and what's right about our church. But the truth is they could do the same. And so we keep shuffling people back and forth. I go to this church, I get mad at what they do, so I go to this church, then I get mad at what they do. And like the the guy who was marooned on the island for many years, and as the person came to rescue him, came and said, hey, you want me to show you around the island before you take me home? And he goes, sure. And there were three little buildings, and he says, what's the first building? He said, oh, that's my house, I live there. And then he goes, oh, that's neat. And he looked at it, and he goes, what's the second building? He said, that's my church. That's where I worship God. The guy goes, oh, that's nice, too. He goes, what's the third building? He goes, oh, that's where I used to go to church. (laughs) (laughs) But 
According to Paul, it's that kind of an attitude, it's that kind of a picture that causes the world to think, we're just as spun out as they are. We're just as flipped out as they are. We're as nuts as they are. And so though they may not know what straight is, they may not know what the truth is, they get the feeling we probably don't too. And if we claim we believe in a God, but then we're complaining about everything that he allows, we never learn to be content with the way that things are. We basically put a big sign out that tells the world, you know, we believe in God, but we think he's really messing up because he's letting all these things happen. And when they see that every time we talk to them, we want to convince them that they're wrong and we're right, might as well put a sign out that says, we're better than you. That if you get sucked into our vortex, we will make you like us. Perish the thought. We need differences. We need variety. And we need to accept others. God had most of you marry a person who's opposite you. But he knows how you are. And so at first he made you think that this person was just like you. <laughs> I go talk to people, you know, do premarital counseling with people. In, inevitably, they're like, we're just so much alike. We have so much in common. And I'm thinking, hey, great, great for you. <laughs> the truth is nothing would be more boring than to be married to someone just like you. So God blinds your eyes for a short period of time. <laughs> and then he goes, here you go. You're with someone different than you are. Can you learn to accept each other or you just want to tear each other up and then I'll do the same thing? And it's amazing how God is very faithful that if you discard one spouse because you couldn't deal with the differences, boy, I'll be darned, he, he, he finds one just like the other one. <laughs> and you're attracted to them again, thinking they're nothing like that other person. Because he, he created us to learn to accept others and to get along with people who we aren't like. And that's how the church is supposed to be and it's how it's supposed to function. And if we argue and divide, if we complain and repel, then all we'll become is we'll find people who are as closely like each other as they can possibly be. This is what the church growth movement is all about. One of the first principles of church growth is you've got to have homogeneous units. You need to find people who are about the same age, about the same taste, about the same racial and, and ethnic backgrounds, the same economic levels, the same values politically, and, and then you make a church for just those people. And yeah, you know, you can really grow a church that way, but what an ugly church, an unattractive church it would be. Because if you don't fit into that mold, if you don't have enough money to hang with those people, you feel like you're left out. You know they're not in business for people like you. Or if you're a little older than the others, you get defensive about that. If you're a little younger than the others, you start going, oh, life has passed, you know, is just, I need something more relevant to me. God didn't make us to all be alike. He made us because he wants people as differently as possible to demonstrate we can do this together. We can cooperate with each other. I can value other people. You know, it, I can look at something and go, this may not be my cup of tea, but I'm sure some people like it and it's good. We should do this. You know, are you going to be somebody who, because you don't like mincemeat pie, you don't think anybody should bring it to the potluck? 
I was like, hey, be glad they bring the mincemeat pie. If you don't like it, more pumpkin for you. But see, that's the way God has made us. It's like, you know, together we can see a miracle happen. And it's the miracle of the church. It's the miracle of the body of Christ that says you can be different and not fight about it. And you can be in a world that isn't the way you want it to be and you can stop complaining about it. And when that happens, boy, do you shine. Boy, do you stick out in a world that is just used to this is the way life is. And all of a sudden for you, it isn't. That you don't have anything to complain about. And, and you're someone who receives people who are different than you are. You're starting to look like a child of God when that happens. Jesus Christ was known as a friend of sinners. He attracted people who didn't know anything about God and had no desire to walk with God. But they were drawn by his person, his personality. And lives were radically changed. I'm afraid that today, the last place, someone who's really spun out and out of control, the last place they're going to want to come to is church. Sinners aren't drawn to church the way they used to be when Jesus was around. Because we don't let his family likeness develop in our lives enough. We send out a message that says, this is not a safe place to fail. The body of Christ should be the safest place to fail. It should be a place where you know you can come and get comfort and strength and constructively you can hear it straight, not curved, not with a spin on it. And if we start to do that as a people, that shines. We will then be the stars that we were designed to be. We are the pinnacle of his creation. We are designed to shine forth. But again, let your light so shine that they see your good works. And glorify your Father who is in heaven. Not that they will hear your profound arguments or that they will be so convicted by your judgmental statements. Ah, they see your good works and go, boy, am I drawn to that. Somebody has said that you can chase butterflies all day long and not catch them. But if you sit down and you're really quiet, sometimes one of them will come and land right on your shoulder. And then you can smash it. No, just kidding. But... <laughs> But that's the way that God has designed us to work. If we would just do what we're supposed to do, if we would be who we're supposed to be, if we would allow God to do that work in our lives, people are attracted to that. We wouldn't have to come up with scams as to how to reach them, spins and, and sales pitches in order to sucker them in. They would be banging on our doors individually and going, I see a straightness in you. I see a love in you. I see a goodness in you. And you've never beat me over the head with it. But, you know, I would love it if my world could stop spinning long enough that I could have the peace that you have, that I could know the love that you know. That's how it's supposed to work. So what's the big deal about complaining? What's the big deal about arguing? It keeps that from happening. It keeps the world from seeing the difference. And it's seeing the difference that will open the door to them getting that word of life, to them passing from death to life. I want them to get the word, but if we scream it in their ear, they're never going to hear it. 
if we would stop complaining and tearing each other up, now they'll start scratching their heads. I've never seen people so different who care about each other so much, who accept each other like this. That's the way it's supposed to work. And Paul's heart for the, for the Philippians was like, you know, if I die so you could learn this, I'm happy to die. Because if you learn it, others will learn it from you, and my life will mean something. But he said, my life will be just vanity if you don't get this. I don't know how much longer I have to live on this planet, and you don't know how much longer you have to live on this planet. But a worthy reason to live would be to say, you know what? Before I go, I want to give this message to as many people as possible. I want them to see that there's acceptance from the God of heaven, that you can shine like a star if you let him do that work in your life. And I would like to cause people around, if I could influence just a handful of people to shut up and stop griping and arguing, then like Paul, I would just go, man, if there's somebody this morning that just decides to quit cold turkey, living their life all negatively and critically, then I would say, you know what? You just made my life worthwhile. You just made it worth living. We have lots of opportunities to do that. We've had a, a week of Thanksgiving, maybe griping too. Be nice. I wonder what, how the, the whole world would change if just those of us here decided this week to call a moratorium on complaining and arguing. Just not going there. Not going to do it for a week. I wonder how much eternal fruit would come forth if we would just commit to doing that. Okay, forget the week. How about for the next hour? <laughs> what a profound impact it could have. It changes the identity of who we are, and it allows God to work in our lives, making us, as children of God, start to take on the family resemblance. That's his heart. Let's pray. Lord, you never t just tell us how to do it. You show us. And really, without this scripture, we wouldn't think that griping and arguing is that big of a deal. But Lord, you have connected it to eternity for the people around us. These poor people who don't know what straight is, no one's ever shot straight with them. These poor people who are living in a state of vertigo, spinning out of control, needing something, someone to hang on to. Lord, help us to hang on to the word of life. 